This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Shannon and Kathy with Terror Talk. Um, Today, we are going to discuss Leaving Neverland, which is the documentary, the HBO documentary. Um, Well, it's Michael Jackson being accused of sexual molestation and abuse by two gentlemen who are in the documentary. And it also travels with their family. They talk about their, they have lots of interviews with what? Both moms, right? Both moms and siblings. And siblings. And there's a brother and a sister. Uh, so it really shows how the family was affected, which I appreciated. So mm-hmm. the film premiered at Sundance in January. And the filmmaker's name is Dan Reed. He had done a lot of, doc- he had done several documentaries before this. But he states himself that he'd never done a story like this. It was a new type of story. And he's a British filmmaker. This was created for Channel 4 in England. And he has stated that he was discussing with Channel 4, you know, what his next project would be or, you know, similar sort of big unanswered questions, I guess, type of stories that were out there to do a documentary on. And they looked at several different topics and I guess the unanswered Michael Jackson situation Mm -hmm. out as you can imagine as sort of unanswered you know there had been as you'll see in the documentary there had been two different um, I guess criminal cases filed against him in the past that he had gotten he uh, one of the case what they say 1993 case they were settled out of court and the they paid yeah he paid them off right he paid uh the family of Jordy Chandler's family. Um, and then the 2000, I think it's 2003, he was found not guilty uh, against, I guess, Gavin Arvizo. Imagine going up against those attorneys. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. So, so this film director, I, I guess on one of the forums, he came across the, the cold case that I guess uh, Wade... And James had sort of begun and Wade had, I think it's Wade. Yeah. Wade had uh, sued Michael Jackson's estate uh, civilly. And then it was dismissed because apparently they, the court said that he had waited too long and the film director came across that and then got more interested. And a year later he found himself, you know, interviewing Wade and James on camera Uh so in the after film Q&A, which is usually about 15 minutes at the premiere at Sundance, they discuss that. And then the only direction, he says the only direction that they really got was to just tell their story simply and straightforwardly. 
you know, the, 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 the subjects of the film talked about how they were suspicious of Dan at first, of course, because they didn't know him and they didn't know what he would want or how he would skew their story, but that they gained his trust and spent a few days with him and told their story and that that was really their goal was to be able to finally tell their story, which I think mm-hmm. they did. I think they yeah, did they, well. They four hours to do it. Yeah. And uh, towards the end of the documentary, you see more of the long-term effects with um, their wives and their mothers. Um, so it sort of takes you on a ride from, you know, their, their seven-year-old selves or 11-year-old selves or wherever. I know it started at different ages for them yeah. um, to now. Right. I So a couple of things. The way we're going to discuss this film tonight this I don't know docu-series it's so long you want to call it a docu-series but everybody calls it a documentary but the way we're going to discuss this is a couple of different ways first of all we both would like you to know that we have no first-hand knowledge of anything in the documentary anything having to do with Michael Jackson this is all just our reactions to the film and then later we're going to discuss uh, sexual predators their victims and also the opposition to this film and sort of the aftermath of what's happened after the documentary was released. But so that's the disclaimer. Did you have anything to add to the disclaimer, Kathy? No, I, I think just to um, piggyback on that, to let everybody know that uh, you and I will be making observations as we talk about the documentary. And that doesn't suggest that we're taking a side or at least blatantly saying that we're taking a side. But I think there's certain certain sides to this that need to be discussed and, and um, brought up that are relevant. Um, so I just want the disclaimer here is we're not trying to sway anybody one way or the other, but we might be making observations that may appear that way. Um, but it's really just for discussion. Yeah, we're professionals, but we have personal opinions too. So we'll try mm-hmm. to be clear which is which. Uh, and, you know, some of the things we discuss later in the show will be more clinically minded and more broad. So not having to do with Michael Jackson in particular, although I'm sure we'll find correlations with what was presented in the film. Again, we're right off what was presented in the film. So we're just extrapolating examples of certain characteristics that we've seen in the film. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Hopefully you get where we're coming from. We're just talking. Um, and let's see. Okay. So, it's interesting. I I saw the so it premiered at Sundance and there was lots of drama around it. There was lots of controversy. Everybody thought there was going to be a you know, a picket line and this kind of thing. And I guess I was reading um so I'm not talking out of turn, but I was reading on the deadline.com site about how there was there were threats of violence against the filmmaker, et cetera, et cetera. And in the Q&A after the film, the James and Wade were both there, and as was the filmmaker, Dan Reed, and they got up on the stage and, you know, were asked a few questions. And they were both kind of emotional, Wade a little bit more than James, but one of the questions they were asked was, how is your family now? Uh, how how did they react to the movie? You know, uh, is everything going to be okay kind of thing from the audience? And 
I thought what they both said was super thoughtful. Uh, James, who is, you know, he was reportedly, of his own report, uh, molested by Michael Jackson starting at the age of 10. And he was saying that when his mom watched it, she's also in the movie, he says he thinks that she was looking for somewhere in the movie there to be some kind of a forgiveness from him. You know, you can imagine a mom watching this and mm. and wanting... He's like, I just felt like she wanted there to be some scene in there where a part of my interview was where I said I forgave her. And she didn't get that because that's not in the movie because he doesn't forgive her at the moment. Um, and he thinks, you know, that, that that probably hurt her. And he says something. He says this quote. He says, forgiveness isn't a line you cross. It's a road you take. Yes. And I'm on that road. And it will mean more when I get to the end of the road than if I were to just forgive you now. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was so appropriate. Yeah. And healthy, right? Yes. And realistic. Yeah. Um, I think, in other words, he's saying, I'd rather forgive you and mean it than forgive you to get rid of the guilt or for it to be authentic Right. Or to make you feel better, to be a people pleaser, which is what this abuse has me being anyway. You know, right. that that's the healthy thing is, I mean, I, I, and I know you have too, but when you work with grownups who are abused as children, they often can become people pleasers in that they want to take care of other people's feelings over their own. Mm -hmm. So it really shows sort of a healthy side of him just sort of saying, I know that you want that. I can't give that to you. And I'm on the road to it. I would like to, but that's not, that's not a, just a, like a one step thing. That's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to me, they just started telling their story and in a very public way. Yeah. And I think that that's where, um, and we'll talk about the skeptics at the end, but I think that's where a lot of people, uh, who haven't been through something like this will say, well, how are you able to just get up and tell this now? Um, and, I, and I don't think it, it, it was that. I think this was, like you said, a, a long road, a long journey. Um, I, know, I know Wade talked about going to therapy. I think James did too. Mm -hmm. But they've, they've worked really hard to get where they are. Um, and sometimes the very end is being able to utilize what has happened to you and, and make meaning out of suffering. And, and I know that I've done that in my personal life. I've seen clients of mine do that, but it takes a long time to get there. Yeah, I was struck. I was struck in the documentary. So the documentary is four hours long. Um, there's a lot of footage of Michael. It takes you through the filmmaker did a lot of research with the two different trials that happened. Um, with Michael Jackson where he was accused and then, um, you know, settled out of court and then was found not guilty in another, but there's a lot of footage. There's a lot of footage of Michael. There's a lot of footage of these young men when they were younger and you really see the stories of who they were and what they were interested in. Wade was a, a you know, became a very successful dancer and choreographer. And obviously it's like his livelihood was tied to Michael because he was inspired 
by you know his talent is what put him on Michael's radar and then that's you know he became a dancer and a choreographer and Mm -hmm. just also intertwined but what I was struck was by was when Wade gets to the point where he's finally going to tell the truth in his life is because he starts seeing a therapist Mm -hmm. and you know finally tells the therapist the truth Mm -hmm. and then well he even said he he said I, I lied to my therapist for a long time yeah oh yeah he was lying to everybody and he says but he also says you know i didn't know it was he said this in multiple interviews and he says it in the movie he says i didn't know it was a bad thing what michael was i didn't ingest it as a bad thing what michael had done to me Mm -hmm. until like six years ago (laughs) meaning in 2013 you know like he didn't know he didn't when he first i think that's when he first um brought the claim against jackson's estate he, he said, I, I just didn't, that wasn't on my radar. I really didn't, I loved him. I didn't think it was bad. Whatever Michael did, he says this in the Oprah interview, he says, whatever Michael did was right until recently. Yeah. Well, and yeah. another, another thing he said too was, I had, for my own sense of sanity or, or self-preservation, I had to believe and trust that it was not abuse that what had happened between us was love. And I think he even talks about at the very end when everything was really blowing up, it's like he had a really difficult time um, not protecting Michael. And, and we'll, I know we're going to talk more about the psychology of this later, Mm -hmm. but we, that that's like the Stockholm syndrome or the, the trauma bonding piece where it's like you, you, you really, fall in love with your captor and you fall in love with the person because they they make you feel so special that you don't see it as abuse and so for people to say well by the time he was x age how could he not see it i mean maybe not as a child but i think that's something that stays with that person for a long time and then there's that sense of wade didn't really grow up Uh, there's a sense of arrested development there too. So, Mm -hmm. so many complicated issues with this Um, for someone who's never is either not in the the mental health field or it has never been a victim or known someone who's gone through this. It's really easy to be an outsider and go, this just doesn't make sense. I mean, he must've known, Uh, but it's not that simple. No, it's definitely not that simple. Um, what Kathy is referring to is that the way we're going about this in this episode is we're go- we're talking about the film now and our reactions to the film and different things about that. And then in our second half, we're going to talk about uh, pedophilia and the victimology around that, and also the opposition and the different things that came up with this movie because it's it's it caused a stir. Um, some of the yeah, things I, that the uh, some of the things since we're still t- sort of talking about the actual film and the way that it was constructed, um, some of the things that I noticed that the filmmaker did, um, which again he was just going based on this story being the truth, mm-hmm. uh, was he did a really good job at setting up um, how much they valued Michael. You know, Michael was not seen as a bad guy through all four hours of the film. They talked about how talented, how loving, how giving, but how, as, as it goes on, you start to realize how part of that was the love bombing. Part mm-hmm. of that was the grooming. Mm-hmm. Um, and another, another couple things that I noticed too, that he did was there are times where I can't tell Wade and James apart. 
um, the way they have them sitting, the way they're talking, they even look a little bit similar. Mm-hmm. I start to confuse them at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think that's, you think that's somehow constructed by the, well, it couldn't have been because they're the two people that were involved, yeah. but the, somehow constructed by the filmmaker, or do you feel like um, that's the typology of a predator who picks similar types or I think it's both but I think I think what happened was the filmmaker took advantage of that and I and when I say took advantage I mean in an artistic way not in like a manipulative way um the lighting was the same the way they were sitting was the same it almost Mm. looked like they were sitting in the same house in some parts it looked like um (laughs) it was done very there was an intention which there always is I understand right there's a he's an artist right he's an artist but I think there was an intention in some ways to for you to almost see this as one person one experience I don't know if that's good or bad but I had some I had some reactions to that going sometimes it felt a little bit like a setup Mm -hmm. um but that may just be uh, you know my transference or reaction to it I don't know if, if that if what I'm talking about is even where he was going I don't know it's it's a reaction right we all have different so yeah to be clear it's like our reactions to the movie are our reactions just like you may have reactions when you watch it or you know because lots of people have had reactions to this movie and taken to the streets and gotten their picket signs out and said it's all a lie and Michael mm-hmm. Jackson just liked kids and like shut up i mean lots of people have that reaction so Mm -hmm. and and yeah and i totally get it it's like he's a filmmaker of course so the the color correction and the sets and the way it's set up is all going to be you know they're they're going to want it to be congruent but it sounds like um there was a reaction to it from you of just sort of like is this a manipulation or what you know that kind of questioning suspicion Mm -hmm. we watch stuff and mm-hmm. I, I was, I have to say, I was probably like that for, I don't know, the first half or so. And it started to shift just because, well, something you already mentioned, which was, you know, they, they really balanced how much they loved Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and it they definitely were, shifted. I, I, they it were definitely clear shifted. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing was that the way their stories are delivered is not heavy handed and it's not one sided. So it's the same, it's a similar thing, but it's like when you're listening to them, there, there's no urgency on their part. Um, you don't get the sense that they're lying. You get the sense that they're just, they're telling their story and that it's healing for them. Mm-hmm to do that and that's what we know as therapists is that people need to tell their story Mm -hmm. sometimes 50 times that's right um in order to find the narrative that assists them in in progressing in their life and so i just thought it was so interesting that he tell he finally tells his therapist right after can you imagine any therapy working that you lie to your therapist for years so yeah well and and as we know was going well (laughs) all client all clients do lie at some point so that's no shock but this is a this is a big lie to hold for that long and and obviously he wasn't 
lying to the therapist he was lying to himself but what a heavy thing to hold oh my gosh so heavy and and it really struck me that he said and it was like the floodgates right he was just so ready he said 90 minutes later he was telling his family um he told his therapist in session and he went to meet his um, brother and sister for lunch or whatever and he told them it was just like it, it just came out of him was it Wade or James? I think it was Wade that, who's the one who has the brother? That's uh, Wade, Wade. Wade, and I'm talking about Wade if I didn't say that. I know yeah, no, but I, but you, when you were talking about the disclosure piece, it, it mm-hmm. um, when his brother, uh, I'm sorry, when his sister-in-law had said, I had this dream last night that you were, you know, uh, molested by Michael Jackson or whatever, and his oh, immediate yeah. response was to make a joke. Mm-hmm. And because he had been to therapy for yeah. X amount of time, he, he was at a point where he actually stopped himself. Yeah. And that, when he told his, that was a really powerful moment in the documentary, I think. Yeah. That was him, him. And, and as far as like therapist jargon is concerned, that was him recognizing that he was going to use one of his regular defenses. Cause yep. humor, humor can sometimes be a defense against truth. And, he realized it in the moment and stopped himself from doing it and just like sunk into what was real about the moment, which was so that's just a testament of how much work he had really been doing with his therapist to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when you work with someone who's been in denial for 30 years or 20 years or however long it was, it takes some time to get them to a place where they can be strong enough and have their ego be strong enough to do this kind of work, like Mm -hmm. be this honest and, go tell his family. I mean, it's, it's super amazing. And and Wade in particular, they both have their moms in there, but Wade in particular said that when his mom watched the movie, she watched it alone and he was really scared um, for her to see it just because he had only seen it a few hours, I guess, before her when the film was done. And he was just mm-hmm. really scared because what, what uh, apparently he, he said, I, I said things in the movie that had never been said before. So mm. he was literally going to watch this movie and hear things and learn things that she had never known. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was sort of, you know, hopeful that that would help their relationship mend over time. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just, ugh, I can imagine it's like, you. I mean, how do you bounce back from my something God. like this? My God. Yeah. I have to say, you know, there's, there's a part of the us as an audience and I know lots of people have had opposite reactions. And I think I had, both reactions in the same moment as watching this you know you're both appalled at how parents could have this kind of thing happening and not know I mean we understand why but you're appalled at it or shocked or scared or frightened by it and then you're the dialectic is that in the same moment I was so empathetic towards oh my gosh I just, oh my, like their, their genuineness too. I thought this movie had a lot of real genuine emotion because the moms were both balanced too. You know, what you were saying about the guys being balanced, the moms were balanced too. They were like, Mike was my friend for 25 years. Well, I think one of the lines that hit me the most, um, and again, I think it was Wade's mom who said, you know, um, you know, all of our happiness was at the price of my son, yeah. of his suffering. Brutal. And and so, yeah, there's a total dialectical piece. And I felt it the whole time I was watching it. And I remember 
towards the end when Amanda Wade's wife is like, I can't even look at her. How mm. could she ever now having a son? How? And I'm thinking, girl, this is a different time. Mm-hmm. We do. They did not know what we know now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is not me justifying it because there was a lot of poor judgment, a lot of poor decisions. I, I'm not saying that the mom was always in the right, but what we know now and, and the information that's available to us now versus 30 years ago, mm-hmm. it's like night and day. Yeah. And we're looking at, again, Michael Jackson. Yeah. Michael Jackson's not going to, he said how many times I would never hurt a child giving money to Africa, doing that. We are the world, all this stuff. I'm sorry, but I think a lot of people would have made that mistake and they can sit there and say, oh, I never would have allowed my child. Bullshit. Right. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. I think, I think it just comes from a naivete about how sophisticated, if it's true, how sophisticated this is mm-hmm. uh, that we are all susceptible and people are going to hate that I say that, but I believe we're all susceptible to these kinds of things in the right set of circumstances, absolutely right person. Um, you know, your, your kid's soccer coach does something strange and you're right on top of it. But Michael Jackson, your friend of 25 years, plus you've had your son telling you repeatedly getting on the, you know, testifying for Michael Jackson and saying nothing happened and basically exonerating him because you're a kid telling everyone that doesn't happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. They had a lot of, they had a lot to fight through to still be suspicious. So again, but I sit on both sides of it. Like there is a part of me that's like, man, I hope I would be the kind of person that would would figure it out. But, or just again, look at it and go, why does this grown man want to sleep in a bed with my son? And then I started thinking, I started thinking, you know, if, if this, if the tables were turned Mm-hmm. And this was a female pop star and a younger girl. Would there be this much speculation and how much of that is, you know, socialized that right. gender piece? Um, but, you know, maybe not in the 90s, but maybe it would now. Maybe I- it would now. But also, and I mean, no disrespect when I say this, because I've been a fan of Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 and Janet for a long time. Michael's a weird dude. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would have been like, I he's so childlike it's so weird to me that that gut instinct you would hope that that gut instinct would have kicked in but you're also you're blinded by his seduction part Mm -hmm. of what we're seeing now in people's reactions and their aversion to believing wade and james has to do with their own seduction by a man who's been dead for 10 years absolutely and i think honestly i think that um i think that leads us into what we're going to talk about in our next section, which I'm just going to say is more of the psychology around how this sort of thing happens. It's a, there's a, there's some similarities to, uh, we, we talked about a documentary called abducted in plain sight recently. There's some similarities in that to this. Um, and so we can pull that in as much as we want or as little, but we're going to talk about that. And then also just sort of talk about the fallout of the movie um, Kathy, unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about specifically with the movie. No, I think this is a great uh, spot to, to move on. Okay, great. We're going to take a little break and then we'll come back with some more of the psychological aspects of this. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. 
We're back. This is Shannon and Kathy with Terror Talk. Our The second half of our show is we're going to discuss uh, pedophilia, the characteristics of that, um, and also the victimology of pedophiles in general. So we're speaking generally. We don't know Michael Jackson. We're, we may reference the documentary and certain things we saw in that documentary that are in line with what we know psychologically about this particular pathology, um, but we're not commenting necessarily on that because we have no first-hand knowledge of it but we can comment on what we know as um, professionals in psychology about those things uh, so Kathy I know that you worked a lot with sexual offenders correct That's I have um, or not great actually it's difficult it's very <laughs> difficult work it's really it's very difficult yeah, it's yeah. complicated um, and maybe part of the duology we were talking about earlier, where you feel both the dialectic of feeling both things at once, you know, both, both sickened or scared or um, confused, and then also both empathetic mm-hmm. and feeling for someone who is a pedophile. I don't know. Is that how it is to sit with mostly men who are in that camp? Yeah, I mean, I guess... The, the easiest way to describe it and the media and the news do a really poor job with this is not all sexual predators or sex offenders fall in the same category. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can be any, anyone from someone who's endured their own uh, violent abuse that could be by um, being sexually molested themselves or, or just exposed to pornography early on and asked to, um, you know, masturbate in front of an adult. I mean, it could be that all the way to someone who is just a psychopath and has zero remorse for their behavior. So I just, I want to be really, really clear about, um, you know, because we have this, we have this pop psychology belief that all sex offenders fall in the same category. Now, with me saying that, that does not mean that the victim endures any less abuse because their predator was abused themselves mm-hmm. so those are two, those are not mutually exclusive things that i'm saying i just want to be clear that there's there's a continuum like there is with with most things so to, to to answer your question i've definitely felt empathy for predators who have been through their own abuse and through their own fucked upness clinically speaking versus the ones who are just really psychopathic deviants who nothing has ever really happened to them they are just very sick and twisted and i've worked with them as well and i can't say that i ever felt empathy sitting with them yeah i guess it's very difficult there's different kinds i mean i know that even with pedophilia there's a couple of different kinds of predators in the sense that there's opportunistic predators um yeah and i don't i'm not I'm personally not that clear on the different kinds of pedophilia. So opportunistic would, would mean that they don't necessarily have a profile or type. Mm-hmm. They might. Yeah. Some opportunistic offenders do. But opportunistic is really just whatever's right. available. It's kind of the garden variety offender right. who's like, I'll take a girl, I'll take a boy, I'll take a 10-year-old, I'll take a 13-year-old. Um, am I in a situation where I could get away with this? Right. Uh, that that makes sense. And then so the people that are characterized in the documentaries that we've been watching, um, Leaving Neverland and Abduction in Plain Sight, would not be characterized 
as opportunistic because there's this long grooming process, right? That's right. Even though uh, you hear the word opportunistic and you're like, well, I mean, that's a great opportunity to groom someone that those are not, that's not the same thing. Um, If, if what we're taking as truth, Mm -hmm. Michael spent a long time um, gaining that trust and making them feel very special. And then, you know, that was part of the seduction. And then by the time it actually happens, it no longer, it doesn't feel like abuse. It doesn't feel jarring. In fact, it feels really right. good. Right. There's the grooming process that takes quite mm-hmm. some time. I also know that another thing that people sort of may or may not be confused by or, uh, you know, don't understand is that it, it, pedophiles in general are individuals who can be sexually attracted to males, females, or both sexes in their real life. Mm-hmm. The, you know, they... They may have a type. I don't know. They may have yeah, I mean, I think um, I apologize if anyone can hear that. There are sirens <laughs> going by my window right now. Um, yeah. So one of the, the the assessments that we would give when people were first um, sent to us on probation is we would give them a an assessment that would assess what their age and profile of sexual attraction and um, uh, level of arousal and all that stuff would be. And there's multiple assessments that can assess for that. And so, yeah, you could see a, a heterosexually identified middle-class white male who's married, but his, his um, population of victims are 10-year-old boys. Right. Right. So I think that's a, that's a common thing that people get confused by. Like, oh, if, if, you know, if an older man is preying on young boys, that means he's gay or something like that. And mm-hmm. my understanding is that that's not true. One of the things that came up for me watching this, um, when I used to do risk assessment um, evaluations for sex offenders, was one of the, one of the things, one of the criteria that will cause someone to score higher on what's called the stable, which is an assessment, it's an inventory, is um, identification with mm-hmm. children. And so as I was watching this, I'm like, wow, if Michael was administered the stable acute, he would, he would definitely score high on, on that identification with children, which is a different type of sex offender right. um, than a sex offender who just loves the power and control piece. And not to say that there wasn't a power and control piece with him, because there is with all abusers, but there's a very specific type um, that sometimes is exclusive to a child who's also, I mean, a, a predator who's also has a history of abuse, is that identification with children. Yeah, I, And I yeah, think if we're I, looking at I, this, it's pretty clear. I yeah, I understand. You know, it's interesting because when the family... Well, when Michael himself and when his family, you know, defend him, discuss it, it's they always fall back on Michael just love children and he just, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm, the whole yeah. time I'm thinking, guys, that's not helping. It's it's one of the criteria. Like, stop it. <laughs> it's not healthy when you're a 34 year old man and you're still identifying with childish things. Um, that's a big red flag. And I'm not talking about the, the grown ass man who every once in a while likes to put a Lego set together with his kid. Cause it reminds him of his childhood. Right. I'm talking about everything in his life 
is childish. I mean, his home was called Neverland. Yeah. Hello. And so, I guess that's a red yeah. Flag. And I guess in the general public, that's one of the things that people hold on to. Like, no, he was just a child himself. And and I'm thinking, no, no, he wasn't. No, he was not. He conducted yeah. himself as an adult in his adult life. He knew how to make he, that switch when he, he had he, to. He had a career that he attended to. Um, he had, you know, if you've seen any of the other documentaries along the way, you know, he had life, mm-hmm. he had friends, he had people, he was uh, man- manipulating, you know, if we were going to take this truth, mm-hmm. uh, which I think uh, by and large, a lot of people believe these men and their story, um, at least in the psychological communities. So if we're going to take it as their stories are real, as real as they can be knowing what they know about themselves and what happened to them. You know, he conducted himself as an adult and he was manipulative and, That's and he right. was a friend to other he knew He well. knew how to make that yeah. switch. Yeah. So he wasn't yeah. a kid. <laughs> he wasn't a kid. He, he liked kid things. Um, and so that, I mean, I think that kind of brings us to a lot of um, at least things I've, certainly read in the literature about reasons why people conduct you know um in engage in pedophilia or pedophilia behaviors and i i understand there's a lot of there's a lot of theories around um they how they're like seeking sexual relations with children because you know poor self-confidence social anxiety you know cluster c personality stuff um and like some of the studies back that up, some of them don't, you know, shame, low self-esteem, abuse, but not, not all pedophiles were abused in their childhood, that kind of thing. So that's right. Yeah. And, and I think um, one of the things that we can't ignore is the definition, one of the definitions or one of the criteria of, of pedophile is being sexually attracted to prepubescent individuals. Mm-hmm. There is definitely a sexual component to oh, they're just growing hair on their body or their breasts are just starting to develop. It's not just about, um, oh, you like to play with trains? I like to play with trains. There's, there's, a, there's a deep sexual attraction to this uh, development, sexually developmentally um, part of this person's life. Yeah. It's an attraction to that, the sexual being of that age, I guess. Um, it's, it's a struggle for, uh, I mean, me as a human, but also the community at large, I think in general, to kind of not, to kind of see that as a, as a clinician would, you know, that they're attracted Mm -hmm. to that, that age group. And most of us Mm -hmm. think, you know, we're kind of reviled by that, right? (laughs) Yeah, and there's a there's a big difference. Uh, I mean, and this is all this is all clinical yeah. to most people day to day. They're like, what's the difference? But there's a big difference between pedophilic and hebophilic. And hebophilic would be somebody who's attracted to teenagers. Mm-hmm. So, um, which we've really normalized in society, which is you know the the pubescent girl who's dressed like a 30 year old when she's 15. I mean, Disney's normalized that. Nickelodeon's normalized that. Um, there, there's a whole, I mean, YouTube has, (laughs) YouTube. Yeah. 
But when we're talking pedophilia and someone's pedophilic, we're talking even before that. So I think sometimes people put pedophilia in with teenagers and that is that that's a different stage we're talking prepubescent which is i mean it's both bad but it's real bad yeah you know that brings up something sort of interesting because in this documentary uh wade robson talks about his encounters with jackson being from the age of seven to the age of 14 and my understanding of his story is that it ended at the age of 14 because um, Jackson attempted to have sex with him um, and it, it didn't, didn't happen. You know, it was um, aborted kind of it's sort of mm-hmm. like an attempt and it didn't go very well, something like that. It's, it's you know, mm-hmm. he, you can listen to him and how he describes it. And, and I think he, he tried, he attempted my understanding to have, like, of the story was him. that for a couple of years before that, they hadn't, there hadn't been any sexual, um, encounters and then they got together and this sort of um, brief at- attempt happened so I'm you know with what you're saying and again we're just we're just theorizing um, it sort of seems to me like because of all the other people that have accused him that he might have been a, a pedophile and then once they were older it just sort of didn't work or he wasn't as interested. At least that's the way the story kind of plays out. Yeah. And I know that I know James was a bit older. He was 11. So yeah. And again, it just, it depends on when, when a a boy or a girl's body starts to develop. So 11 is technically considered hebophilic, but if you look at just what you were talking about, which is when that whole encounter happened, he you know wade was at a different point in his development a different part of his life sexually developmentally and i think that michael was like uh it's not working anymore maybe i mean the power differential yeah um is different thought it could be but you're also looking at a guy who michael i mean if, if we're looking at this to be true um, he had a new kid every 12 months. It could have been that Wade just didn't hold as much mm-hmm. significance anymore either. Yeah, I mean, there were relationships too. I mean, we can't just... I, I never want to just boil something down to someone's most difficult or negative pathology. Um, mm-hmm. That's obviously what we're talking about. But then I'm also seeing Michael Jackson as a human being and how these were really... But he had weddings. Him. I mean, he had wedding ceremonies with them. Yeah, they, these were relationships for him and friendships for him. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, both things can be true. Again, another dialectic. Both things are true. He was both loved them and was abusing them and cared for them in different ways, not in the ways we would want to be cared for. But mm-hmm. And these were friendships. And so whereas he might not have been acting out sexually necessarily with them when they passed the age as of which he was attracted to them they were still his friends people he'd known for years and their families and so it's it's interesting how that all kind of comes out or comes together i think he yeah whoever his his most significant person was at that time i i believe that the best way he knew how he really felt like he loved them yeah we can all you know wasn't healthy is different and this may be that's what I'm saying. 
wasn't healthy. No, I mean, this but... may be a love. This is obviously a love that disgusts most of us on a primal level. If you don't orient that way to the world, um, right? And you know the 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 few people that I've encountered with this, um, I don't know, pathology. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, set of circumstances, set of um, symptoms around uh, pedophilia. The few people that I've sat with in that are are there. I've just picked up on a lot of shame, a lot of disgust with themselves. Um, the at least in my qualitative, you know, few people, um, and maybe that's just a function of, of them seeking help from me, is that there's a lot of shame and, and disgust and not wanting to talk about it and denial and, you know, feeling of self-loathing. So, mm. I've seen both. Just, I've, de- I've definitely seen both. Yeah. I've seen the, the heavy shame of I wish I could stop this and then I've seen the crocodile tears mm-hmm. and the the victim blaming more psychopathic um, more psychopathic and that's why I was saying earlier there's definitely a spectrum and the ones that you you feel that shame with them those are the ones that are easier to have empathy for because who would want to carry that yeah and I don't and I don't know this to be true and I, I certainly don't know who Michael Jackson was but you just kind of that's that's what makes me kind of wondered because as you and I know um the palette of someone's personality again isn't boiled down to one set of symptoms it's Mm-mm. there's a lot going on there so you know you mix a pedalytic um notion um uh, what I can't think of the word um profile let's say with psychopathy you know with an abusive history you know when they were a kid with criminal behavior with this you know like you can you can stack on with an access to you know like you can stack on all of the different things and I don't know who Michael Jackson was and I don't know what what he had it it, it's very rarely just one thing so right and we do know I mean I think I think we can say with almost 100% certainty he came from a very abusive um he had a very abusive father yeah uh he had a stage father he he was forced to uh I I don't know if Michael actually ever had a stable sense of identity no I mean that was clear in all the other behavior that we witnessed to Michael Jackson over the Mm -hmm. years just from uh you know being a fan um right medical conditions and the different marriages and the stories about you know when he was a kid and his father being abusive and all this stuff was sort of in the Mm -hmm. zeitgeist about Michael Jackson which of course we don't know if any of it is true but it you know there was a lot going on and I was reading Mm -hmm. stuff about you know social anxiety etc I mean that all kind of fits for him of what we knew of him like really social yeah and... and I understand why his family has really reacted to this mm-hmm. um, and not just for their own preservation, but I know just Janet is very protective over her brother. Yeah. Um, and so I, I can only imagine putting myself in her shoes and, and her maybe even knowing to a certain extent that some of this could be true, just the defensiveness and the wanting to protect him um, and knowing what he endured and what he went through you know, as his sister. Yeah, I, I would not want to believe it either. So I understand. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, I think it was Wade who was asked, um, you know, what would you say to, what would you say to the fans of Michael Jackson or the family of Michael Jackson, you know, that have that difficult time believing your story. And he, he actually just said that I get it. Like that. I understand how hard it is to believe this because yeah. not that long ago, that was me. I couldn't even believe it. You know, I didn't believe what had happened to me was a bad thing until like six years ago. And we can only right. accept something when we're ready. And I thought that was a really astute answer. It's just. They, I, I liked how they answered a lot of those difficult questions. I think that they, um, and sort of like what we were saying at the beginning was, you can tell they've both done a lot of work. There was not a lot of emotional reactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff that they answered, you know that they've processed already and they've had to prepare for people sort of lashing out and going, I don't believe you. And who wants to believe this about, I mean, for many of us who were born anywhere between 1970 and 1980, Michael Jackson was your yeah. guy. Who, who, who yeah. wants to believe? I mean, I, uh, yeah, you know, certainly after I watched this movie, which I guess was, I don't know, 10 days ago or whatever, whenever it came out, uh, shortly after that, I was, I was somewhere, uh, I walked in somewhere, some kind of a, store or restaurant or something and they were playing 80s and 90s music and they played a full block of Michael Jackson like right after I had seen this (laughs) and I just had this very visceral reaction you know Mm -hmm. in my in my body I just uh because immediately when the song came on I was like oh my god I love this song like in my head and you know made me want to sort of like dance in my seat and not, you know, and not two seconds later, I was like, oh, you know, it just sort of like came at me. Yeah. Just overwhelming. I was, uh, oh. I was looking today, you know, Sunday just... papers. Uh, I, I was looking over the last couple of days in the papers and the it, Sunday paper will always have like, uh, you know, deals on music and some of this, I, I like to collect vinyl and I saw that Michael Jackson's thriller was the vinyl record was $20 and 99 cents and I'm, my first reaction was, I know that's gone down in price. Yeah. yeah I think- and that could just be, that may not even be true, but that was my immediate reaction was like, I wonder if his stuff will sell the way that it did. Yeah. I mean, before, everyone, you, know? you know, everyone is going to have their own reaction to this. So, you know, some people will be more successful and maybe this will be me in the future because it will be a distant, this documentary has sort of become a distant memory in my head, but some mm-hmm. people are going to be better at compartmentalizing the music and the artist, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know, I don't know what the answer to that is. You know, there is no answer mm-hmm. to that. Some people will decide to compartmentalize it. And, and again, we, I keep saying this word, but like live in that dialectic of the music is brilliant and the man was sick. Um, mm-hmm. If you believe what the stories are, but and some people won't be able to. Some people will never be able to listen to Michael Jackson again. And it just sort of depends on your triggers, you know. Um. Sure. And if you've been a, a victim of this yourself or, um, yeah, I mean, or just, again, what your triggers are, what your sensitivities absolutely, are. And your history and, and what you're fighting. And, and, and so when you're listening to us today, even you might, you know, think we're full of shit or be angry at something we said or you know, and because, and it's all based on your, your triggers, your history, your, 
your reaction. And, wh- and what you're ready, we understand what you're that, ready but to... not that he does. Yeah. <laughs> what you're ready to hear, what you're ready to process. Right. I wanted to say a couple things um, just more uh, generally about the psychology of it, though. Two things that came up because we were comparing to abducted in plain sight. Um, the ability the abuser has to seduce not only the, the, the direct mm-hmm. the environment of that victim. So, you know, we saw an abducted in plain sight as we did in this documentary. Michael's ability as well as B's ability to uh, get this entire family to go, yeah, I mean, take, take her, take them, go on trips, do this, do that. The amount of trust, um, it's pretty remarkable, the, their, their mm-hmm. skill set. The grooming piece is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, the filmmaker said that he couldn't really tell this story unless he told the family's story. I mean, it started with interviewing Wade and James, but that he realized very quickly that without interviewing the family, it just sort of wasn't going to be what he wanted it to be because mm-hmm. you have to sort of understand the victimology, right? The um, Just like mm-hmm. in Abducted in Plain Sight, like seducing the family, having the family be a part of it um so that you have access to the child i mean that's a part of the pathology that we can say that in in this characterization of events that michael jackson fits you know he it's the it's the grooming right one of the uh one of the the clients that i worked with uh years ago he would tell me um how he found most of his victims at their church and he was really good at grooming the single mothers who didn't have husbands or or the the father of the the child was not in the picture he came in as this hero and he would seduce the mom not sexually but he would seduce her Mm -hmm. and gain her trust and the next thing you know this little boy's going out for ice cream with him and the next thing you know he's looking at porn in his car um so it's really interesting and he was very open with um, how he was able to do this. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, it, I mean, it sounds very, you know, very thought out as we would imagine it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's mm-hmm. the thing we're not getting in this story, as, as we all know, is we're not getting Michael Jackson's side of this. So, right. We're just getting right. His family side of it, I guess the family did an interview on CBS this morning and refuting it and sort of saying, you know, oh, they talk about how they got love letters from Michael Jackson. And, you know, his nephew says, I have letters from him and he never did anything to me, you know, that kind of thing. So we just don't mm-hmm. know. And I guess, yeah, the, I guess the estate is suing HBO. Um, oh, really? yeah, because they're saying that there was um some kind of now I'm not a lawyer, so forgive me, I'm not going to say this correctly, but there's articles about this online. There was some kind of uh, anti, uh, like don't say anything bad about Michael Jackson kind of thing that they signed in 1992 back in the day. They're saying that HBO is violating that. Um, And the filmmaker's response to it was that, you know, I don't characterize Michael Jackson in any way, actually. I don't, I'm not commenting on him. I'm telling I'm telling a story right. of sexual abuse and right. I'm not, you know, I didn't include, you know, Michael Jackson's family or opposition to what the stories were. I'm just, I'm telling a story of families that were affected by this and how it affected people, you know? 
Um, right. But we'll see how it shakes yeah. out. I mean, you know, I don't know. There was certainly a lot of drama when it opened. There was a lot of people wanting to pick it and threatening violence, I guess, against the filmmaker. And Yeah, this has definitely sparked a lot of controversy. Yeah, it's a, a lot of discussion, which doesn't have to be certainly a bad thing. And that's that's all we were trying to do today is just opening up a discussion about our thoughts about it and and visiting the issue of, you know, what a pedophile is and what they aren't um, today. And, and I, I have a feeling that we'll get into this again, because I noticed that when when a couple of these have been made, you know, abduct in plain sight, finding Neverland, I mean, there'll be more the topic will open up more and I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll tackle it again because sadly it's yeah. not going away um I did want to make sure before we wrap it up I did want to make sure that I mentioned that if you have any need to contact a professional when you need any help in this area um if you're being hurt or you know someone who's being hurt uh, HBO actually created a pretty great resource section I found so it's at hbo.com slash documentaries slash leaving Neverland, leaving dash Neverland slash resources. And they have resources on there for people who are being hurt, you know, sexual assault hotlines, all kinds of things for parents, for kids, for, so just go on there, take a look. If you need something, please don't hesitate to contact and get yourself some help. And with exactly. that, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of help out there. Absolutely. So that wraps up our episode for today, unless you had something else you wanted to mention. No, I think, um, okay. I think I've said it all. So this is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.